0: Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of Outlaw Country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey, everyone. Today, we're featuring an episode of one of our favorite shows here on the Pushkin Network, Talk Easy, hosted by Sam Fragoso. In the episode you're about to hear, Sam talks to the renowned music producer and composer Ludwig Gorenson. He's a Grammy and Academy Award winning producer and composer who scored Ryan Coogler's Black Panther and most recently scored Christopher Nolan's epic Oppenheimer. He's also produced records and written songs for Haim, Rihanna, Adele, and Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino. Here's Sam Fragoso's conversation with Ludwig Gorenson.
1: This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by renowned music producer and composer Ludwig Göransson. Over the past decade, he's won three Grammys, two Emmys, and one Academy Award for Best Original Score for the film Black Panther, directed by... By Ryan Coogler. In fact, he's scored all of Coogler's films, dating back to Fruitville Station. When he's not working as a composer, he's producing records and writing hit songs for some of the most beloved musicians today. Haim, Rihanna, Adele, and most consistently, Donald Glover, aka Childish Gambino. But his latest collaboration might be his most ambitious to date, creating the score for Christopher Nolan's newest epic, Oppenheimer. The film tells the story of the complex and controversial American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer, as he races against the clock to develop the atomic bomb. While each of the performances from a cast that includes Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. are electric, it's Ludwig's singular composition that I think both pushes the film forward and holds it all together. Nolan himself has called the work deeply personal and historically expansive, drawing the audience into the emotional dilemmas of the characters while they each grapple with the vast geopolitical issues at play. Having seen the film twice now, it's Ludwig's score that has most stayed with me. It's powerful, but not overpowering. Tender, but not saccharine. If you haven't seen the film, you'll hear some of what I'm talking about in this episode. We also discuss his musical childhood in Sweden, coming to America in his early 20s, the building blocks of his decade-long collaborations with Kugler and Glover, respectively, and how his work on Oppenheimer marks a new chapter in the composer's varied, illustrious career. This is my conversation with Ludvig Göransson. Ludwig, a pleasure to have you here.
2: Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here.
1: You know, we rarely have someone on the show whose hair is longer than mine.
2: Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about that?
1: Profoundly insecure.
2: <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about it lately. Should I cut it off or should I keep it? But now I've passed the stage where I'm like, I don't know too much of my personality in it and my identity. Are you afraid
1: of like the new person you would become if you cut your hair?
2: I'm not afraid of. That, I'm more afraid of like everyone losing interest in me.
1: <laughs> That's it, Ryan Kugler, Donald Glover, Christopher Nolan, they're just in it for the hair they don't have. <laughs>
2: That's the secret.
1: Um, how has your summer been back home in Sweden?
2: It's been incredible. This is the first time, and I moved to America about 15 years ago, and this is the first time when I'm in Sweden, my home country, for more than like a week at a time. I've been here for three months now. It's great. I mean, the biggest reason why I want to spend more time here now is <clears throat> because of my kids. I have an almost four-year-old and a, and a two-year-old. And um, you just want them to have the Swedish identity and want them to be able to speak the language fluently. And so it's it's important. Being back home, has it forced you to
1: kind of like reflect on the last 15 years of working in America?
2: Yeah. I don't know who I am here yet a little bit. I feel like everything around me here has changed, and I'm a different person. I never, I never had a professional career in, in Sweden. I was always a you know student or you know a kid. So me coming back as as someone that has a, some kind of work experience and trying to just trying to kind of navigate life here, and I feel like a lot of things in Sweden changed too the last fifteen years. So I'm I'm still trying to find the balance and trying to find myself here but it's it's an exciting time to do that well it's been an especially exciting summer for you because
1: i don't know if you've been reading but people seem to be liking oppenheimer it's brought them back to the movies Mm -hmm. the barbenheimer phenomenon i don't know how it happened but i'm glad it did in the film there is roughly two and a half hours of original music which some publications have reported you made in five days. How does someone make
2: something like this in five days? Well, I think, start off, the, 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 some of that publication is not correct. Beautiful. But to go back, you, you can't, this is not possible to do it in five days. It was published that, that I courted, recorded the music in five days, which is also not true because I recorded this for about six months with different musicians, like string quartet, string octet, soloists, but. When I had the whole orchestra together in the same room, that amount was five days. The recording process, when you record the full orchestra together, that's kind of the last piece of the puzzle. So that's the last final stage of putting together a film score. The hard work is often way before that. So normally when you hear the orchestra playing the score, that's, that's like the climax of the whole process when you can kind of take a step back and just listen to the music, almost like seeing your, the birth of your child or something.
1: Well, if that's the climax, why don't we just go back to act 1? Mhm. You get a call from Christopher Nolan. He
2: says what? He says I finished a script and I'd love for you to read it and can you come by and read it tomorrow or in 2 days. Chris is kind of in a way where he doesn't really talk about what he's working on even though we spend time together and we talk and but he's never like, "Oh, I'm thinking about writing this and this is about this." So it's always kind of a call out of the blue. So I get the call, I go out to the studio, I go into the room, close the door, and sit with the script for as much time as I need. And this was a pretty heavy script. Uh, I had no idea what it was gonna be about. And so I immediately get just sucked into the story, and sucked into Oppenheimer and the character, and the way that the script is written is, is from Oppenheimer's point of view, everything, you're living the world through his eyes. So that was something that that I was completely taken by surprise, to read something like that, and, and I was completely floored after I read that script. And I immediately also thought that the music needs to kind of do the same thing and the same experience I had when reading it. Then Music needs to get the audience to feel like they're in his eyes, feeling everything he's feeling.
1: The first step, or the only specific instrument he wanted, was the violin, which... As I understand it, you don't play the violin, mm-hmm. but your your wife does. When you drive back home, what's the pitch you make to her?
2: Um, well, it was, kind of, it was kind of after I read the script and Secrets, actually. I, it was not until a few days later when I went to his house and we talked about it. And it was also we talked about the script. We listened to music. We talked about movies. And. And that's when he kind of mentioned that I don't really have any ideas other than trying to use an experiment with the sound of violin. And Chris also knows Serena, my wife, so he knows that he's, she's a violinist and, and kind of have the advantage to be in the studio with her and, and experiment and you know try out some different techniques and spend time on just sounds was definitely a luxury. You two working on it before you bring in this big orchestra that you're talking about, do you remember a moment where it kind of started to click? I remember we'd been recording the whole day just different kind of glissandos, just one note, little vibratos and long notes and doing glissandos up and down and changing the pitch and changing the the, the speed of the vibrato, going from something somber and beautiful to something horrific within seconds. And then I think after a whole day of recording that, we're kind of both just like, okay, this is this is not that fun. Like... <laughs> <laughs> sitting there for hours recording noises, and we we're like, okay, well, we have to go home and see the kids. I remember I was like putting down something on the piano really quick. It took me like five minutes, and I was like, why don't we just record this idea over this bass line that I wrote? And she played the melody in one take, and it was beautiful and haunting and and intimate and kind of sad and fragile. And it, we recorded that within 10 minutes and I sent it immediately over to Chris and then he called me later that night and he was like, this is Oppenheimer's theme. I think this is the theme.
1: Well, since we're telling this story not exactly in chronological order, which is kind of fitting, I think, for a Christopher Nolan work, why don't we play the titular track from the film Oppenheimer? Let's do it.
2: Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. What were you thinking about hearing that just now? It brings back a lot of memories because, you know, we're trying to find the tone of the, of the movie. And, and I remember that the way I, wa- I wanted to try to find it was to really find emotional core of the music instead of focusing on kind of like the sounds and production. And I always try to have a different way to go about how to start a project. I always try to do it a different way. I always want to feel like I'm doing something for the first time, but it was it was just so interesting that that tro- like after writing two three hours of music and and trying really different type of compositions, and this piece that was just kind of one more simple was the one that really stuck
1: and then your wife recorded the song that
2: you wrote you know i I wrote it as we were kind of packing up the <laughs> packing up from the suitor to go home, and we were kind of in a rush. And I started with that bass line, do, 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 they form a bass line, and then we have the melody on top of it. And the other melody that you hear is, is a counter melody to the original melody.
1: When you're in the process of creating this elaborate score, it's fascinating that the thing that landed most, the emotional core that you were looking at, it came about when the two of you were rushed, anxious to get back home, thinking about your kids probably more than you were thinking about mm-hmm. putting down this track. In that process, have you found that that typically happens? Like when when you're not expecting it, it kind of finds you.
2: Absolutely. Especially when you've done, you know, you've been doing something for a long time in a day. You've been writing or you've been recording with your band and you've done it for 10 hours. Like the last two, three hours, everything it's going to start sounding bad. It's like your head gets tired and you start to criticize yourself when I mean, like, you like there's all this noise coming into your to your mind your brain and like this voice is telling you that you know telling you what telling telling like you feel like oh this is not good this is not you know it's time to go home attempt wrap up but a lot of those times that's also when when the magic can happen
1: well i want to uh, pinpoint when this like magic started happening for you because like we said at the top you're back home in sweden which is where you came of age in a pretty musical household. Your father was a guitar teacher, your mother, a florist and a pianist. Even your sister was musical. She played the violin. You, of course, began playing music at the age of seven, I think it was. Yeah. You wrote once, I've been making music every day since then and tomorrow. But my understanding is that the only reason you started playing the guitar was because your parents refused to buy you video games, which is what you kind of wanted like every young kid. And instead of a gaming console, you received a small, portable, four-channel cassette tape. Is that how this all began?
2: Yeah, that's how my music production and songwriting came about. When I was about six or seven, I started sitting down with my dad 10, 15 minutes every day, just some alone time and just playing some very simple songs on on guitar and... I didn't have any opinion really about it. It was nice to spend some alone time with my dad. But then two years later, I think it was my birthday, and I was like so excited. I was finally, it's going to be a Nintendo in the car waiting for me, <laughs> like a secret <laughs> package. And then I got a four track tape recorder instead. We put it up in the basement, and I never left. And then every every birthday it was just another thing, like a drum machine or an 8-track digital recorder or a new guitar. And there's always something musical that that replaced those urges of video game consoles.
1: Was there a particular day and a particular song by an American metal band that kind of fortified your desire to, to make music?
2: It was actually, the, the way it came about was that my dad, he's a guitar teacher. So when he started out as a classical guitar teacher and then he started playing blues and they loved, you know, blues and soul. And then one day his guitar students gave him a Metallica album and asked him if he could teach them how to play these songs. And he was like, no way, like, I hate this music. <laughs> and then, but he took it home and he wanted to be a good teacher. So I was like, OK, I'm going to learn this so I could teach them how to play this. I remember being a kid and just hearing like a crazy noise from the basement where the studio was. And I go downstairs, and I open the door, and I see my dad, like, headbanging Metallica playing on Inner Sandman. And, like, my mind just exploded. It's like, what is this sound? What is what is this music? How can I play it? Had you ever seen
1: him headbang before?
2: No, I never seen him like that, like, unleashed. And since I already knew how to play a little guitar, I could pretty quickly, like, pick it up and start playing the, the, the riffs and stuff. And then the solos, well, obviously, I had to practice a lot. But then it became a thing like we got me and my dad went to see them live. we started playing the songs together. I started a band I was all in from that moment.
1: were your parents like excited
2: that this was your
1: obsession that you would like stay in the basement and and just like
2: stay in it yeah they were my they were my biggest fans and supporters like i'm I'm thinking back at it now like i might I started a band, and my dad was he arranged for us to play on this on the square of our hometown. He set up our instruments, he drove us around, he opened up the rehearsal space, you know, all the time that I just now, I just at the time took for granted, like that's what, you know, parents do. But now thinking back at it just every weekend, how much he kind of spent his time and energy on that. It's pretty remarkable.
1: When you're in high school and, and you fall in love with like American rock and roll, when did you discover the possibilities of film scoring?
2: I think a big part of that was like Napster and it was a program called DC plus plus. I don't remember that one. Okay. Yeah. It allowed me to, if I found a song that I liked on Napster, I could click on the user and then I could go into that user's like sound libraries or music libraries. And I could just pull that user his or her whole library to my computer and find music that like I had never heard of. Some of that music was like like Boston music. Some of it was Turkish music from different parts of the world. And some of it was also film scores. And that was really fun for me, like listening over and over to like the MacGyver theme song I and mean, the Turtles theme songs. Yeah. Um, and I think a big part of it also was like technology. Like I liked being on the computer and finding this type of music. And I also had a program in my computer called like Impulse Tracker. It was like the first type of sequencer where you don't have like a range window. You have everything is just zeros and ones and numbers. So basically when you play the song, it just looks like a, 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 like a crazy like screen of just numbers up and down. And, and that's how I made my first kind of songs on the computer. And then obviously I went into Cubase and Logic and all that stuff. But a big part of the thing that excited me was also how the production of it and, and using technology.
1: Have you listened back to any of those?
2: No, and I don't want, I don't feel like I want.
1: (laughs) Your debut as as an orchestral composer came at the age of 17. It was called Five Minutes to Christmas. Mm -hmm. The night that that was performed,
2: what happened? It was kind of of out-of-body experience because you were 17 years old. You know, the only time you've had your music performed is with your band, with three or four people, and then the fact of like sitting and writing orchestral scores. We had opportunity, we had a great school, so I had an opportunity to, to write for the symphony orchestra and I was one of the few chosen from the class to do it. And since we had such a good education, I already knew how to write it, you know, by hand and write down the sheet music by hand. And I was sitting in by the piano in our living room and just writing that the whole summer. It was very inspired by Star Wars and Nightmare Before Christmas and had like slables in it and kind of a Darth Vader theme in it not that great but you could clearly hear what the inspiration was and then yeah it was opening we we opened it during a school concert and there was the whole concert hall was full of people and they played my music and it was really wild because everyone loved it so much and like they played it on the swedish radio and it really made me feel special but the big take up that was to hearing your music being performed by seventy people in a concert hall to a live audience. and just the feeling of that was like how I just asked myself over and over again, how can I do this for the rest of my life, and how can I be able to to do this in my as a job?
1: After the break, more from Ludwig Gorenson.
0: despite never picking up an instrument herself lovingly dubbed the boar's nest sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters wounded souls wayward upstarts would spur each other on to tap into something bigger realer starring mandy moore and featuring evan moss baccarat as shel silverstein and tj osborne as johnny cash alongside a full ensemble cast Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com
3: slash the Boar's Nest.
1: Coming back, we were talking about the Five minutes before Christmas orchestral piece that you put together, you then studied jazz improvisation at the Royal College School of Music before eventually moving to the U.S. at the age of 22 in pursuit of your master's at USC here in Los Angeles. This, I think, was in the fall of 2007, a period that you once described as a very difficult time in my life. What did that look like? Um, just f-
2: crying every night and missing my life that I had in Sweden and like feeling very lonely. That is the opening of Oppenheimer. Yeah, it is. It is. I had those times. I, and, and, if, and the funny thing is that I had that already happened once in my life. Like when I was 15, I moved to Stockholm. I lived in a smaller city. I moved to Stockholm. I started a, like a music high school. And then at that time, I, like, I moved home again. So I gave up and like I moved back home. And then I, I always kind of like regretted that decision a little bit. I didn't want to do the same thing twice. You couldn't give up again? I couldn't do that. I knew how much I would regret it afterwards. I feel like LA is probably like one of the loneliest cities in the world. Everything is just so difficult to know where to go. You have to plan everything if you don't have a car. But the school, I mean, the school was great and it was competitive. The, the professors, and that's why I wanted to go there. The professors are all professional. And I think one of the thing that was difficult was that the homesickness, like I didn't understand what that was either. Like I didn't know why I was having all those feelings. I was just confused. Why am I feeling like this? I couldn't navigate it and not being in control of that. And that was very scary.
1: What do you mean scary?
2: Just not, just, ha- it's almost something like, like a jealousy. You know, jealousy is like a feeling you can't control. Uh, at least for me, like I remember the, the times where I had those feelings that you're extremely jealous or something like that, it just eats at you or it comes like a big hole in your stomach and that's what it was. Like at one night, it can be, I had the best time of my life and then like all of a sudden and 30 minutes later, it can be just completely crushing and, and not knowing why. When do you think you started
1: to get some control over that? Um, You're like, never, still here. <laughs>
2: No, but but uh, it's not until recently where I'm like kind of starting to understand how those feelings came to be and and what that was all about and how I can try to give my 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 kids some kind of stability that so they don't have to kind of go through that.
1: It does sound like I have, I have to say you really of all the things we've talked about, it does seem like the thing that's most on your mind right now.
3: Oh,
2: of course, yeah. Definitely want to try to understand myself as good as I can for for my kids' sake.
1: In that period when you're in your mid twenties, did meeting and beginning to work with Ryan Kugler and then Donald Glover did that help you understand yourself in that moment?
2: I think that was maybe one of the things. I don't I don't know if we had that in common, but like I, one of the things that Ryan and I had in common was definitely like feeling like we're far away from our families. And having a hard time he's from oakland yeah he's from oakland he's, and i was like well you're just two hours from home it was like five hours from home like you can just but that's not really what it was about it was like your community it was everything that's familiar to you and leaving that for something new and how difficult that is and that we could talk about that it was special and then yeah and then to go back to our teacher kenny hall kenny hall was an incredible uh, teacher professor at uc uh he was a music editor Uh, who worked with John Williams on E.T. and Jerry Goldsmith and a bunch of his movies. And he was the only teacher at school that had a class for both composers and directors in the same class. Which is unusual. Which is very unusual, but should be obvious. (laughs) Uh, Because music is, I mean, music is one of the most important parts of film. And to get some direction from a professor for the directors to how to talk about music and how to approach that, how to talk to the composers... I think was was incredibly helpful. And to have a class where we can discuss, so we can also understand how the directors talk about music and how they think about music. Because we're all students. We're like, oh, this is, you know, music is the most important part of the film. And like, it should be the loudest, you know, part of the whole student film you're doing and take out the sound effects and the dialogue and like, (laughs) and don't give me any notes. That's kind of how you approach it from the beginning. Was that your
1: policy back then?
2: No notes? (laughs) No, I was, I, I was, I was pretty open, but uh, but I, I definitely remember before I started USC that I had like this romantic image of the film composer getting getting the film, having several months to himself at some kind of lodge up in the mountains and just being able to write the whole film score by himself <laughs> and then taking it to the orchestra and getting it performed and then magically it's in the movie.
1: You had to settle for Los Feliz and Silver Lake, I guess. <laughs> you know, as your uh, romantic hopes were kind of slowly dashed by the real process of making and creating these scores. You did like dozens of scores for students at USC. What stood out about Ryan and his work?
2: First of all, I was friends a little bit with Ryan before he did his student film. So we, had, we already had a little bit of a relationship before he asked me to score his film. But also like his way of, you know, it was, although it was just student film, it was a student film called Locks his first project and at that time the student film he did didn't have any dialogue um, so it was just music and sound effects and the movie was beautiful you see this this guy in Oakland with long locks like long dreads wandering around the streets you see some some gang members getting hand, uh, handcuffed by the police he goes through the neighborhood he sees like, other kind of rough things and you're, and you're like what's going on where is this story going to go and then he goes into the barbershop and he gets his hair cut off. They sweep it up and they put it in a plastic bag. And then he he walks on his way home. And then he enters his apartment and he opens the bedroom door and you see his little sister sitting there who has cancer and it doesn't have any hair. And that's the short film. And I I, I wrote some music for it. And at that time I was living in a I was living on 28th Street, which in LA is like fraternity street. I didn't know what fraternities or sororities was before I moved. And I wasn't part of the fraternity, like they had gotten thrown out. So it was only for grad students, but I was sitting there in that little, little room trying to write music. And it was like crazy parties going on every night on the street. You know, the, all the dudes look the same and drinking from the red cups. And I really, I literally felt like I was in an American pie movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ryan comes in and we sit down and I have headphones and I give it to him and he's like, oh my God, is this guitar? Oh, what's this instrument? And he was just so excited. And having that reaction and like learning about the instruments. We talk about the, you know, the techniques that we played and the take in. And that was the, that was the beginning of our working relationships. And that's still how it still feels like that.
1: Why don't we take a look at that first collaboration for a moment? So people can get a sense of what it sounded like. This is Lox directed by Ryan Kugler. What do you think seeing that?
2: <laughs> it sounds so very early in my career. <laughs> you know, like all your teacher at the time, like oh, You know, you have to find your own sound, and all the students like, what are you talking? Like, what are you talking about? What <laughs> How do you find your own sound? What is that? And uh, I'm not saying that that was my own sound, but you can definitely hear some um, an interesting balance between like melancholy and. Happiness? You seem almost skeptical to say the word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not a word you want to use to describe your music, maybe. But but maybe or maybe it is. Of course, it should make people happy. But it can be melancholic and make you happy in that way. I think it's, it's an amalgamation of, of both. Mm-hmm. But
1: the idea of finding your own voice, that is something we all have to try to find.
2: Was that a challenge for you? No, I mean... I think for a lot of people, the way that you think about when you have to find your own voice is like, okay, I need to spend a lot of time by myself in a room and find my own voice. Well, at least for me, the way that I did it was the complete opposite. It was opening doors to other rooms with other people and talking to them or jamming with them and learn what they do and like being interested and and, you know, wanting to discover and, and have a musical exchange with people that came from completely different backgrounds or cultures or or played different genres and, and see if we can do things together. And looking back at it now, I think that was kind of what really shaped me to become who I am. When you started working
1: with Donald Glover, this was like before he became Childish Gambino, you were scoring community at the time. Was it around then that you... Developed this approach where you would say what we're making can be cool it's just not cool yet
2: <laughs> well well uh to me when i first heard his music i was hesitant before he even sent me any music because i knew him as being an actor and i was like in my mind i was like well okay a lot of actors probably think they can do music too And also in America, like, people have a confidence that you don't really demonstrate like that in in Sweden. So when he was like, yeah, he wrote me an email, like, I'm also a rapper and musician, and I don't know a lot of people in L.A., so maybe you can take a listen to the song and recommend or help me with the mixing of the track. And then he sent me a song, and I was, like, so surprised. I wrote it back, this is incredible, but what if we just add some drums or add some, you know, live drums or we work a little bit on the arrangement? And he was really receptive to that and we met up and we started to just work together for 15 years but i thought his music was cool from the jump and i just i was like is there any way we can make this better is there any way i can just help in any way i would love to be part of it In those early collaborations first on cul-de-sac then camp then
1: because the internet did it feel like it was uncharted territory for
2: you absolutely i mean i listened to rap music not like the standard ones. Like the record I had listened to the most was the Fox Brown album because I just thought it was so cool how she had like Egyptian music on there and like how they used those samples. And I was just, I was listening to that and like Midnight Vultures like over and over and over again. I didn't have that deep knowledge of hip hop at the time and I wasn't and I had never really done a beat. But that's also what was so exciting. He was kind of introducing it to me and showing me like all these incredible songs that I didn't know and it was like to me like yeah learning a, a new instrument and it was the most exciting thing for me you know around the time you two started
1: really getting going you donald and a bunch of your friends starred in a short film directed by hiro murai called clapping for the wrong reasons now this is a movie i personally obsessed over with my friends as a soon-to-be freshman in college back in 2013. why don't we take a look at one scene in particular where um, you are playing uh, on the guitar a little bit.
2: that in 10 years and what do you think i think we're all like searching i think donald was definitely searching and i didn't know you know how big part of i was going to have on the record or if i was going to be part of it it was a very kind of a uncertain time for me at least and then there was those there was those jump joy of moments where we were in the studio In that it was like one of the libraries and we were in the studio there and I think it was Chris Bosch, Old house, just out of nowhere. Like I, I was, I was always kind of on the spot to come up with something in the moment, really, really quick. That was both stressful, but also kind of exciting. And because Don had a lot of at that time, I was like, he was he had a lot of things on his mind. So if something was going to stick, we had a very short amount of time in the studio where where he could just kind of get into the music. And uh, even though he spent a lot of time in the studio, but I feel like the, when I was there, like we had to do something. Week and it was a little it was stressful and and then something great came out of it and it was a it was a kind of a moment of joy and i was and and when that little moment of joy happened it's like how you know i had sustained that you know okay five minutes 10 minutes okay 15 minutes oh this is turning a song 20 you know so it was like it was a strange time and also like with all the albums that he's done like i don't know where he's taking it and don't know where we going? We I just start off driving, like driving blindless. At least me on that album, I, I thought we, we took it to some really interesting places. The way you're describing it,
1: like that period of of searching, even now a decade removed, it still sounds as if it's kind of a mystery to you.
2: It was a mystery because I was also in a situation where I didn't, like I didn't understand those the feelings that I had. It was all about like trying to get this music out. And I I guess I I think like the feelings came out in the music. I mean, I know that the the feelings came out in the music. And that's why it's so interesting to hear that now. You know, I can hear that anxiety and stress, but the magic in that and just those little few guitar chords that I heard. And it's like a calming thing, especially that song like The Flight of the Navigator. They all kind of feel like you're a kid or... You know, and and playing that in your room. And and I think a lot of it comes back to maybe sitting there being a kid and being feeling lonely and sitting in your room and trying to figure out what life's about. Back in the basement. <laughs> yeah. It sounds to me like it was like a
1: self-soothing sound. Like you're feeling all this anxiety. And yet that track we just heard is, is extremely calming and, and, and kind of self-soothing.
2: Yeah. No, it's, it's. I don't know if you have kids, but it's definitely a thing you see when you start to understand a little thing, a little bit with, with the self-soothing thing and how everyone finds their own ways to self-soothe. Some kids suck on their thumbs. Some kids like touch their face in a in a different way. Some, you know. Some kids jam out to Metallica. <laughs> some kids jam out to Metallica and make sad melancholic songs that are also happy Also happiness (laughs) in them because you have great support from your parents (laughs) but yeah there was i was definitely i i think when i think back at it too i was lonely also a lot as a as a kid you know my parents they also they also worked a lot and my sister was six years older so i spent a lot of time just by myself too
1: you've clearly used that loneliness and channeled it into the work and I wanted to pinpoint those two moments with Coogler and Glover, because at least to me, they seem like the foundational building blocks of what would become a decade-long collaboration, going from Black Panther with Ryan, for which you won an Oscar, to producing This is America with Donald, for which you won a Grammy, which of course, through this decade, brings us back to Oppenheimer, and part of this film is, is about a man obsessed with his work, a man who moves further and further into this project and farther and farther away from his family. And as I was rewatching it last night, I was reminded of this, this quote you had where you said, um, when I go into the studio, regardless of whether I write the music, produce an album, or write a film score, You just immerse yourself into this other world. You become obsessed. Most artists are extremists. You close yourself off and the work becomes your world. Mm -hmm. That obsession that's central to Oppenheimer, did you feel that kinship in making the score for it?
2: I think that's very true, but I don't consciously, I don't think about any of that when I'm in the process. It's more afterwards, like the conversation we have now where I see that being a pattern in the way I work, the pattern of obsession. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the only way I can do it, really. And I think also with age comes, you know, you get a little bit of different. You're having, you're starting family. You're you're starting to see your priorities in a different way. But, and I'm not saying that I'm I'm doing I having the wrong priorities, but I've definitely been, <laughs> the last fifteen years, just nonstop doing that, you know, without breaks, like extremist world to extremes and they're also extremely different too It is also why i think it works for me because it's so i'm like a different person different world every time and it's so exciting to discover these places but it also takes a toll
1: what toll has it
2: taken i think more now for me it's more important to kind of take the time after you finish something like this and think about how it affected you and think about how, what ha- you know, how it happened, how it came together, and and where you, the places you went, and reflecting more. I guess I'm just more interested in that now. Where before that, I was just on a train, nonstop train, and I realize now how all these experiences had such a deep impact in me, both on music levels but personal levels. And I'm excited because after I finished Oppenheimer now I've had I've had some time to engage with everything else in my life and that's uh, kind of a very exciting chapter for me
1: we've spent a lot of time talking about you know the personal side of of making music and the process your process Mm -hmm. but when we take a step back this film is like coming out at a very fascinating time especially in, in hollywood because of course there's this strike that's happening and one of the big existential fears and issues at play is the use of artificial intelligence, which throughout the film's release, Nolan has explicitly made the comparison between Oppenheimer developing the A-bomb in the early 40s and the theoretical physicists that faced backlash and uncertainty from the U.S. military and Congress, much like the tech industry is facing today in its race to make AI more powerful. He said, quote, when I talk to leading researchers in the field of AI right now, they literally refer to this as their Oppenheimer moment. They're looking to a story to say, okay, what are the responsibilities for scientists developing new technologies that may have unintended consequences? When it comes to making music, where are you at on what AI can do, will do, how it will change the job itself.
2: Uh, I'm very interested in in these type of questions and, and in, th- in the technology. And, and it's not even at our doors. It's already en- entered our houses, entered our living rooms and our listening experiences, especially you know, with that Drake Weekend song that everyone, you know, I'm, I don't know how many million views it has, but it's quite a lot. I still haven't heard it yet. Okay. <laughs> so you can't like deny that it's going to change music forever. You can you can have anyone sit in their room and just like, oh, I want to have a beat that sounds like Michael Jackson from the 70s, and I want Bruno Mars to sing a happy birthday message to my wife because she loves him. You know, I don't think there's a way to stop that from happening. I think we all just need to embrace it and, and know that it's here. I think it's going to be a big shift in in music about you're going to be able to hear the difference you know, I think people are really gonna be able to hear the difference in what's made with computers and what's not made with computers and how much computer was a part of this and how much what computer wasn't a part of it.
1: Do you think people will be able to distinguish between the two?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think maybe there'd be a different service, like AI music will be cheaper and music that people put their own minds and hearts and brains to would be more expensive. And I think everyone's going to start using these tools um, that are going to come to place. And it's just like, what shortcuts do you want to take? Like, how much do you want to shut your own creativity off? And I think there's going to be some important decisions you're going to have to make.
1: Have you been thinking about that for yourself? Like, what you're willing to use and not use? Shortcuts taken, not taken?
2: No, I, I, I want to try it all. Give it all to me and see what I can, how I can customize it as much as possible and make it but I, I don't have any tools yet, so I, don't, I haven't worked with any AI software or, or things yet. But I think that's just a matter of like probably months or, or weeks. or some, some, It's already things out there that, that I think people are using. I, I want to see what it's all about.
1: You sound completely unafraid about this future. You're kind of one of the first people I've talked to that seems only optimistic.
2: I'm just talking about the music aspect of it. There's other problems, obviously, and it's going to be other consequences, but the music aspect of it, I, I, I don't think, at least for me, um, I don't see any threats in computers making music. Some people are going to listen to it. Some it's going to be great. It just, it just kind of depends on who's, who's making it.
1: Well, before technology changes how this job is fundamentally done, why don't we celebrate a human feat? Is there a track from Oppenheimer that you are most proud of? Like one that you want people to hear as we leave this conversation?
2: Yeah, we should probably play the the can you hear the music track? And for me that was one that was like a breakthrough moment I had on this project, but also in a way I have made music in Kind of in a technical level, but also, but also it was like kind of like a Eureka moment for me. Like on a technical level, writing a composition that goes faster and faster and faster. But after a while, after a couple of bars, you don't even, the listener and the audience doesn't even feel it and start or think about it. It's just, it all, it's just an, an emotion. And then one of the important parts of the process was to figure out a way how we can get the orchestra to perform this in one take because if you see the charts it's literally like 21 tempo changes it goes faster slower faster slower it's and and if you just see it with on the page you're like this is not you're not going to get 40 string players to play this in a way where it's going to sound good in one take but we worked on this for three days and kind of banging our heads against the walls like how how can we get this performance right in the end it's like Serena, she was like, well, these musicians are incredible. She's been playing with them for 15 years. They're like the Hollywood Studio Symphony and they, this is their job. They sit in the studio and play seven hours a day to to a click, to a metronome. And we figured out a way to to give the musicians a click in their head, the tempo change, the time change in their mind and their heads before it happens on the page. And when we gave them that track, it just, this magic happened. So that's a really interesting how you combine technology and computers because this, this music, you couldn't have really written it without computers. But then putting that organic element into it with the live string players playing it all in one take in an organic way gives it so much life and makes it timeless and makes it feel like it's human.
1: I guess we should listen to how that all turned out. All right. This is uh, Can You Hear the Music from the film Oppenheimer. Listening to that, could you have ever imagined that that young, lonely kid playing music in the basement would one day create something like that?
2: No, I don't. I don't. I don't see that in the courts My dream was to become a member of Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> that never happened. There's still time. It's still time. No, but it's like it's like my dream was. You know, I was I was dreaming about playing my instrument, being on stage, and playing for big. Crowds and like and and we've done that, you know. We did that with childish and and then I was dreaming of being a pop producer and being producing music and that happened too. And and then I was dreaming about being a film composer and and then that happened too. And and um, musically, all all those goals and milestones and stones. Just I guess I was was lucky.
1: I kind of bring up that basement once more as we leave because I've heard that. This past summer, you went back down into that basement with your mother, mm-hmm. where you were looking for toys for your kids. What was that like to go back to that place, not for you but for your children?
2: Uh, it was kind of magical, you know. You're kind of stepping into that. At that time, was just all the reality, and now it's, it's it's a memory. But it was my safe space. It's it was my soothing place, you know, where I where I. Felt calm, and and that's where I felt most like myself. It was a beautiful moment going back there, and everything obviously felt super small. It's like I feel like I was a giant now in, in Lilliput land. See all those guitars still hanging on the wall, seeing those old tape machines, old tape recorders that I used to use, and, and how they're all still there. And yeah, just thinking about like, where, where's, you know, what am I going to do with all this when I get old? And I, I'm like, Kids are gonna do the same thing. Like, what? What? Yeah, it's a lot of also a lot of questions.
1: Did you find a high school report or something like that?
2: Yeah, yeah, I found a high school report. Right. <laughs> I guess you talked. Did you talk to my mom? Yeah, I, I called her up. I called <laughs> her up right before this. No, I didn't talk to her.
1: Oh, so how do you know? You said it in an in interview. Oh, okay, yeah. I really appreciate that you think
2: I called your mother before this <laughs> podcast.
1: It means we've done our job.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, you really done. Uh, no, but I, yeah, I found the high school report of my, of Five Minutes of Christmas when I I wrote about the process, how I created it. And it's still in my, in my backpack. Like, I, have, I don't know why, like I see it laying there and like, I know that I, I want to read it, but at the same time, I don't want to go back to that kid that I was and the way I was thinking about music then, because it's, it's, uh, I feel like it's because like, I I thought I had it all figured out, you know? I was like right to report about like, this is how you make music and but now I can I, I know now that I, I didn't know you know I didn't have it figured out you've been really putting it off I've been really putting that off maybe the know who's going to bring back like a lot of memories and emotions and just need to find the right space to do that
1: well whenever that is I'm excited for you to revisit that past self but until then I wanna look ahead a little bit because one of the other main components of a Nolan movie is time, how we use it, how we try to bend it to our will, how we regard time that has passed or time that has yet to come. But time is also something I think you've long been preoccupied by well before you began working with Nolan on Tenet. Because isn't it true that when you left for America at age 22, landing here in Los Angeles, enrolled at USC. Did you map out how you wanted your career to go?
2: Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I've always had like, I always had the five-year plan, a ten-year plan, and like, I always know where I'm going to be the next, you know, I don't know how that's where that comes from, but it's always been kind of milestones in my mind about where I want to be and what I want to do. And I guess it's some kind of magic right you create your own future
1: your mother said when you moved here here were the big three things get a job as an assistant one year after graduation (laughs) score your own projects after three years win an academy award within 12 years sometimes she said he's much faster than what he planned
2: they all turned reality i guess but yeah that's interesting
1: well now that you're back home and, and you're sitting with this past year and thinking about what's to come what do you want
2: down the line i think right now um i'm just i know how i work i know what makes me happy i know what type of process makes me happy what kind of collaborators makes me happy and if i can get that and have the time to enjoy with my family as well i think that's the only thing that I mean. I'm asking for a lot, but I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. But I, I think I know a way. And I feel like every day I'm, I'm, I'm getting closer to the answers uh, of the, all those questions you have, and also all those questions I had and feelings that I didn't even think about as a kid. And it's like I'm trying to, can, trying to like going back into those times and understanding it now. And I realize how important that is from like a musical clarity of it. I'm. Probably more excited than I've ever been to to kind of step back into it and, and discover new paths and new ways and, and new worlds. And, and that's also why I wanted to take a little time off and to really get back into that headspace again.
1: Well, the first thing you said when we sat down was, um, I'm afraid to cut my long hair because it may make me a different person. <laughs> I, I may be someone new. And I, I have to say, after having sat here with you for this last hour, I kind of think you don't need to cut your hair to become a different person. I feel like it's already <laughs> happening right now. Yeah, oh,
2: thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it.
1: If not for me, then, then for Ryan Coogler. Yeah,
2: <laughs> thank you.
1: And whatever person you end up becoming and whatever you make because of it, I am so looking forward to it. And I just want to thank you on a personal level, for making so much of the music that was um, kind of a soundtrack to my formative high school, college years, without which I don't think I would be the strange other long-haired person sitting in this Zoom call.
2: (laughs) Well, I appreciate that, and we should meet up sometime in real life and be that two strange uh, white guys with long hair sitting in the back of a coffee shop.
1: (laughs) I look forward to it. Ludwig, enjoy the rest of the summer.
2: You too, Sam. It was a great time talking to you and um, I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you.
1: Until next time. that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you like to listen. I want to give a special thanks this week to the team at Online Voices in Stockholm, the Academy Library, IDPR, Universal, and of course, Ludwig Göransson. To learn more about all of the music discussed in today's episode, be sure to visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. For more conversations, I'd recommend our talks with Pedro Pascal, Hiro Mirai, Tessa Thompson, Alana Haim, Deb Hines, and Ruth E. Carter. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy or our vinyl record with writer Fran Leibowitz you can do so at talkeasypod.com/shop that's talkeasypod.com/shop Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Bastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and CJ Mitchell. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrizak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Narvaez, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Lee Tom Malad, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long.
3: Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the Nasdaq, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.